Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, an artistic associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the summer night that makes me smile, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. Yes, and thank you for using my fancy new title at my new theater. So many new things. We're like, you know, we've glowed up in the last year. We really have. We really glowed up. We have an editor. We have like new art. We've got a new title. Like things are happening. Yep. Yep. Time marches on. So thank you all for being subscribers. And, and so many of you have, have reached out asking when we would be doing shows again. So surprise, we're, we're back on the block and ready to rock. Annika is a brand new mom, which is amazing and wonderful. Obviously has a new job. Lots has happened for us in the last year, but we are so, so, so very excited to be doing this again. Even as I was prepping Annika, I was like, I just, I'm so happy to be prepping a podcast. <laughs> I'm like, this is so, I'm just really, it made me very happy. So we're thrilled to be back. We will be publishing monthly and in the single digits, a Wednesday in the single digits, as we did previously. That's going to stay our schedule, but we are we are finally back. Yeah, and it's good to be back. And yes, I have a new baby who I have made a extensive Spotify playlist called Musical Theater Indoctrination uh, for, and I play lots of shows for him because he can be whoever he wants to be and explore whatever he wants to explore i just have one requirement and that is that he loves musical theater and i feel like that's a bear i feel like genetically it's like i don't think he has a i don't think he has hope i think he is just going to i don't think i think it's something there has to be something innate genetically that you will pass on to him well hopefully hopefully we'll see i mean certainly he's going to be surrounded by it so rebellion I mean, would be like i want to play soccer and watch already, disney films <laughs> you already made him you already made him dress up as sweeney todd for his first halloween so i mean i there's nowhere to go but up i did although i couldn't put like little makeup under his eyes which was too bad because he's too young <laughs> <laughs> so with that Annika, we don't actually have a clue. We didn't give anyone a clue about what we were doing for this um, this episode of the pod. But uh, why don't you tell us what show we'll be diving into this episode? Well, I'm delighted to say that we are diving into the extraordinary, the romantic, the beautiful, the funny, the moving, the sad, the bittersweet, A Little Night Music by Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler. It is a great classic. It is a favorite of mine, and I am thrilled. It is also a favorite of mine. I I feel like, we were talking about this before, but I feel like people don't talk about this show enough in the Sondheim like, canon. I feel like it gets underrepresented in terms of how brilliant it is, but I... As I was revisiting it, I, you know, spoiler alert, I kind of think it's perfect. I, we have some thought, we, you know, we've got notes. We always have notes, but I like, I think it's just so expertly crafted, put together, executed. The score is just gorgeous. I, I just, I mean, come on. Yeah. I, yeah, it's a, it's kind of an interesting one. I mean, maybe because it has a reputation for being sort of on the lighter side, the more romantic side for Sondheim's work, which which can obviously get very dark and very complicated. But but I think, you know, woe to anyone who thinks that any of Sondheim's shows are light <laughs> and simple because, I mean, it's to me, it's like, it's like a perfect, like a Madeleine cookie, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, sure. You could look at that kind of cookie and be like, ah, it's just like a butter cookie. But like the flavor, the complexity, it's like, 
not an easy thing. And this show just, the more you dive into it, the more it reveals layers upon layers upon layers upon richness, upon meaning. I mean, it's, it's, it is not simple. Let's just put well, it that way. And I feel like, I feel like that is plainly evident the first time you listen to the cast recording. Like there is so much richness and texture and yeah. it's so like, you know, the, the, classical nature of the score just all of it i'm like it is sophisticated like in what universe are we like calling this so many people as i was like reading about are like it's a rom-com i'm like it's i mean yeah sure like it definitely like has that about it i'm not saying it's this deeply like but it's also like incredibly layered and complex and like what are you talking about romantic comedy it's not no offense to she loves me it's not she loves me like it's not just like a fun light happy joyful valentine like it's like people are anyway whatever we'll convince them we'll convince them they'll listen to this podcast and they'll see the error of their ways 90 minutes later uh with that uh that'll bring us to the speed test where i do my best to summarize a little night music in under a minute which i haven't had to do this in a full year folks so yeah well good thing this is a show with only uh very small number of characters and a very tiny amount of plot. So I'm sure you'll be fine. I'll do okay. Let's hope I don't butcher the pronunciations of any of the Scandinavian names bringing shame to my like 14% of my heritage. (laughs) I'm glad you have to do this and I don't because I can't even get their name. I'm always like the Liebeschleibeschneme. Oh yeah! Oh my! I can't. I was going to ask you. I was like, is it the Liebeschleibeschneme? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Terrible. All right. I have... 60 seconds on the clock. Are you ready? As I'll ever be. Okay. Third moon smile. Second moon smile. One moon smile. Go. Okay. So basically, Little Night Music, it's uh, Desiree Armfelt, who is like a waning stage actress who's constantly on tour. Uh, she has a daughter who's like living with her mom out in the country. She's been touring around. And she, uh, like 14 years ago, quite specifically, um, Ended like had an affair with uh, Frederick Eggerman, who has recently married Anne, who is actually only eighteen. He's definitely they're definitely like in their forties, um, and she's only eighteen, still a virgin. Uh, basically, this is all just like the triangle, the love triangles upon love triangles upon love triangles. But essentially, so Anne's eighteen and married to Frederick. They haven't actually consummated the marriage. That really upsets Desiree. She has had long feelings for Frederick, so she invites. Um, Anne and Frederick and their entire household to her house in the country um, or her mom's house in the country to basically try to get everyone uh, to get Frederick back. And uh, she also has a, like, she's a mistress to someone who is the <laughs> two. <laughs> I, that was not very good. There's so much in this show. I mean, as you said, triangles upon triangles upon triangles. It's, it's very complex. There is a fascinating, okay, so in the introduction to the public, one of the published versions of the script, Jonathan Tunick writes a foreword about how he orchestrated the, um, orchestrated the show, which I would encourage everyone to read because it's a treasure trove of brilliance. Um, but there's a really fascinating, we should put it on Instagram. There's a fascinating like diagram that's like all these tri- yes. all the triangles of the show that I was like, oh my God. I was like, what a wonderful way to like, literally visualize the 
all of the triangle. It's like really brilliant. It's so good. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that same diagram really blew my mind. We'll put it on Instagram. We will. Follow us. Yeah. Know the show. Pod. Follow us. So with that, that will bring us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea. What is the theme that connects all the characters in the show and is the thing that the authors are trying to communicate? So at the risk of like oversimplifying um, Little Night Music, ultimately like this it's obviously a romantic story there is a lot to do with sexual politics and 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 sex and and relationships and all that i feel like it is the thing that is actually connecting all of the characters is a sense of longing i feel like everyone is longing for something or um yearning for something this is a terribly simplistic way to put this but i do feel like there that is integral to all of the characters except for maybe like the liebeschleiter waltzers or whatever we call them um but the i feel like that is the that is the thing that connects all of the characters together at least from madame armfelt and what she expresses in the monologue at the end which i think is such a beautiful beautiful monologue a beautifully heartbreaking monologue um that there is this kind of regret that or or something that is askew in each of them that needs to be set right by the end of the show whether and and so i term that as longing i term that as like in that way i'm not sure that that's the most effective way to talk about it um but that's that is the thing that i kept finding in upon this reading of little night music Annika, what about you? What do you think? Is, what do you think is the why here? I think, and it's funny because I think you approach this so much like a director. Like, what is each of these characters looking for? Um, I think my approach was a little more dramaturgical, and I feel like which tracks, you know, me being a director, you being a dramaturg, right? That. <laughs> what are the odds? Um, I think when I think of what this show ultimately is about, I I feel like it gives the impression of being about love in all its forms, which it is. But I think when we talk about like the, the secret complexity of the show, it is also about life in such a major way, like a, a whole lifespan and how you are spending your life, what you do with your life from youth to middle age to old age, um, this is not an uncommon thing, I think, in a lot of Sondheim's shows, but I feel like more than any other one that I can think of, this one really has a, a macro view that is large and has a message that is sort of, you should devote your life to this pursuit of love in a very true way because time is limited. Um, and you really feel that, I think, at the end of the show, that, that time is limited, we are all going to die, and that as much as that is sad, there is also a kind of beauty and bittersweetness into the, in that idea of, like, just live your life because your life is short, ultimately. It's so interesting that you bring that up because I it, it, it got me thinking about, I think, I guess it was originally Chorus Line that you brought up the idea of a superstructure. Mm -hmm. And, like... 
Um, and this does this has an actual structure. There is definitely plot. There is definitely like whatnot. But it's interesting that you're you're right. I think you're very right to point out that like from Frederica to Madame Armfelt to all of them, like there is there are the different kind of phases of life, and and again, which reinforced by the smiling of the summer night and the first smile is at the young and their, you know, their folly or the young and their idealism or whatever the actual quote is, I'm messing it up. But then the middle at the fools Mm -hmm. um, who, who know too little. um, And then the wise ones who know too much or whatever it is that she like first couches that in. Um, And so anyway, I think it's such a lovely um, astute point that you bring up. Thank you. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of A Little Night Music. We can never go back to before. This is a really interesting one because normally when I'm doing this section and talking about the history of what uh, inspired the piece, was came before the piece, what was adapted, um, that thing is usually the guiding factor of the show. You know, people wanted to make an adaptation of Pygmalion and they ended up with My Fair Lady. Like that is a very solid part of the genesis of the musical that we were talking about. In this case, that is not entirely true because the creative team actually wanted to make a different piece and were thwarted in that. So let me get, I'll get to that in just a second, but let me start with um, Smiles of Summer Night. Um, Igmar Bergman, who is hugely influential Swedish writer and director, um, one of the most famous filmmakers of all time, one of the most lauded, successful. I mean, it's just like where to begin with him. Um, and I found this quote when I was looking into this movie that he had done, Smiles of a Summer Night, um, that described Ingmar Bergman's films as profoundly personal meditations into the myriad struggles facing the psyche and the soul. So it kind of feels like inevitable that Ingmar Bergman and Stephen Sondheim would eventually do something together, not together, or in the same world, because that that feels like it also could describe Stephen Sondheim. So um, Ingmar Bergman, uh, as I said, hugely influential Swedish writer, director, um, both in the film world and the stage world. Um, In 1955, he had made 15 films and won lots of acclaim in Sweden, but he made this movie called Smiles of a Summer Night, uh, which was about aristocrats who spend a weekend um, in a country estate and all these kind of sexual triangles between them. Um, largely the same plot as A Little Night Music for the most part, some few different tweaks. Um, That movie made him famous internationally. It was his first international success. It won, um, this is my favorite category that I've encountered yet, Best Poetic Humor at Cannes, um, the year that it premiered, and it was nominated for a Palme d'Or. It really became this like grand awakening of the world to Ingmar Bergman's work. So that movie existed in 1955, as I said. Um, But meanwhile, Stephen Sondheim and Hal Prince originally had wanted to adapt a different play. They had wanted to adapt a play called Ring Round the Moon, which was written by a French playwright called Jean Ennui. 
However, that playwright's agent claimed that it could only be adapted into a musical if Leonard Bernstein wrote the score. So he denied the rights to Sondheim and Prince and to Hugh Wheeler, who was a British playwright whom they had admired and brought on to adapt what they thought was going to be an adaptation of this play. Um, so the three of them suddenly were scrambling for another piece that had some of the same elements that that play had. They wanted an elegant high comedy, ideally something that took place uh, entirely during one time and, and place. Um, that play had been during a weekend in a country estate, so that was something also that they were very drawn to. So Hal Prince and Hugh Wheeler, who are both big readers, were looking for books to adapt. But Sondheim, who is actually not a big reader, but a big film buff, buff suggested two different movies that they could adapt one was smiles of a summer night which they all knew because it had been very popular um or jean renoir's the rules of the game and ultimately they went with smiles of a summer night uh because they felt it was a little less heavy-handed than the other film that was their option and ingmar bergman granted them permission to do it although interestingly enough not permission to use the title um with one exception, they could use Smiles of a Summer Night translated in Vienna because they thought that a little night music would be confusing in the home of Mozart. Everybody would think that that was a, a Mozart piece as opposed to what it was. So um, that is really where this came from. It was a, a, a second runner up for this original adapted material. And aren't we all glad that that's what happened? <laughs> so I'm gonna hand it over to Michael Fling to tell about the creation of the show. Um, after this mistake. Oh, also one other fact that I thought was very funny. Sondheim says in Finishing the Hat that he ultimately, once the musical A Little Night Music opened on Broadway, this agent who had denied them the rights for this movie, for this uh, play rather, uh, got in touch and was like, oh, well now it's available. And he, Sondheim said something about he's not even sure that the playwright ever really knew that this was on the table, that this sharky agent that had maybe just been manipulating them all along, which I would be fascinated to know because, man, if you were that French playwright and Little Night Music came into the world and then your agent shamefully said, like, I, by the way, they wanted to do your piece, wouldn't that suck for you? So anyway, a side note, on to you. All I'll say is I, th I think those sorts of things happen very frequently and we just don't ever hear about it. I think you're that probably is, right. I think that happens a lot. So I think, yeah, Happy, happily looking for representation if anyone wants to represent me. However, I do think agents mess up a lot of things. <laughs> but yes, I am very open, um, much like What's-Her-Face uh, in 1776, very open and looking for representation. <laughs> Yeah, that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So I think it's really interesting that they really started, the, the process of what eventually becomes Little Night Music happened like initially, like right after West Side Story and Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim like working together for the first time, which I, I think is kind of amazing that it goes back like 15 years ultimately to when they finally get to do a little night music post company post follies and they really um how prince really wanted something that would return on its investment that they, they really set out to make a commercial success in the case of little night music spoiler alert it does return on its investment you know everyone's happy with it fine whatever but i just think it's interesting that it started in in from that place and became what it what it is so this is a quote um, directly, well, 
So as Annika said, they they screened the movie, and it's not a strict adaptation of Smiles on a Summer Night. They were actually, like, the official credit on it is suggested by the source material, not, um, you know, based on the movie. It's suggested by, which I just think is interesting. I've never seen Smiles of a Summer Night, but um, I, I just find that as an interesting little tidbit. So, but this quote um, from Sondheim in Finishing the Hat, I think... It's, it's a rather long quote, so stick with me, but I think it's really good. So he said, in adapting it and thinking about it, quote, I thought, what if her, her being Desiree, her plan doesn't result in a happy resolution, as in the film, but an unhappy one? And what if she screams in frustration at its failure, prompting her mother, a Norn-like figure who repeatedly plays solitaire, to redeal the cards, causing the weekend to start all over again? What if the first deal works out like a farce, characters falling in love with wrong partners, the second one is a genuine tragedy which results in Henrik's suicide, ending the first act, and the third as a romantic comedy in which everyone would be properly paired off and Desiree would be left alone with Frederick. And instead of restating the theme at the end, as often happens in the classic form, I would leave something emotionally unresolved, calling for a coda, in which Desiree has to make a straightforward commitment to the man she has manipulated. I thought the show could be about the danger and inevitable failure failure of trying to maneuver people emotionally, which is, I think, pretty interesting in terms of how he approached the material. So that's kind of where he thought it was going to go. That's the direction they kind of took it in. And Hugh Wheeler turned in an awful first draft. It was just awful, um, according to all involved. So there is a little bit of uh, debate as to what really threw him off in the first draft. Sondheim feels like it was his conception of, it was Sondheim's conception that threw Hugh Wheeler off. Hal Prince kind of suggests in his um, memoir, Sense of Occasion, that it has um, more to do with Boris Aronson's set design, which was a little more abstract than Hugh Wheeler was originally thinking, and so it kind of threw him off. But either way, Prince encourages him to go off and just write a play or a screenplay and forget that this is going to be a musical. And Wheeler turns around a new draft in about two weeks, which was so good, Sondheim thought it could just stay as a play and maybe it didn't need to be a musical. Prince's wife convinced them otherwise, and they proceeded on. So Sondheim in approach, and his approach to the score really draws on, is drawn to the idea of themes and variations and decides that um, variations on a three-beat meter could have a ton of variety and provide a palette in which to play. Um, and the entire show is written in some form of triple time, which I think is a really fun fact that a lot of people know, um, or at least is discussed when talking about the show. Um, in fact, only 11 measures of the show, which is all in some underscoring in the second act, um, is exists in some form of uh, triple meter or triple meter time or triple time. Um, musicians can be mad at how I fudge the words there. Um, so, uh, originally the show was going to be told through Frederica's eyes, um, but that was scrapped in favor of the vocal overture, which established our uh, Lieberschleiter waltzers, however we say that. I'm going to say it quickly enough so, you know, that sounds like it's right. Um, a change that um, Prince feels was integral to the success of the piece, introducing the audience to the positive spirits within the negative household, which is how he viewed those those characters and suggested a musical without affecting the early exposition that they had already set up for a, what we have discussed is a very intricate plot um so lots of development happens uh, you know again because of the the backlog of the initial draft of the the script 
Sondheim actually writes a great deal of the score during the rehearsal process, um, including um, famously Sending the Clowns, which we'll get to in a second. But um, I think it most remarkably, I think, in A Weekend in the Country, which um, is the big number that ends the first act. And uh, essentially, he had not written any bit of it. Um, and Hal Prince, in staging the show, got tired of waiting for Stephen Sondheim to write whatever he was supposed to write for the end of the first act. So essentially, he he and the cast ad-libbed um, a version of what they thought should happen um, at the end of the first act. You know, we've been invited to go to Weekend at the Armfields in the country. You say, well, I don't want to go. You say, oh, please. You say, well, I'll reconsider. And so he staged about six scenes in this way, and the cast basically improv a mock opera version of what this like ad-libbed thing was prince uh and then prince staging the the birch trees in the background which were very essential to the original design and to suggest new locations so sondheim comes to rehearsal sees this goes home that night and writes a winket in the country um and turns back like a 15 minute number i think that eventually is cut down a little bit um it's not quite it's not that long in the in the actual show but is described as being 15 minutes at that point. Um, and it was so close to what they had improved, they barely had to change any of the staging, which I just think is amazing. It's, that's, I mean, that's crazy. It's absurd. Like, what? No, I mean, you would think that, like, A Weekend in the Country would be, like, it would be sort of like a, um, what is it, Minority Report, where they're standing in front of, like, the boards, and it's, you know... It would lead, need, like, multiple planning, like a giant Game of Thrones table of strategy. It's so yes. complicated and perfect. I, the idea of anybody doing that in, like, not weeks is crazy. It's crazy. And on top of it, I mean, what I also thought was interesting, just in terms of how musicals are developed and whatnot, and I'm totally biased as a director, but the, the director was like, I'm I'm not waiting for you. And they have such a close collaboration. No one's offended by that. Everyone's like, okay, fine, whatever. You're just going to improv it. And then like using that as a palette, I, and then you don't even have to change the staging for this like crazy intricate, like it's amazing to me. It's absolutely amazing. And I, I again, to me, what's remarkable about it is like you know there is no singular way to get to a brilliant product at the end it can happen in a variety of ways and we should be open to a variety of ways i mean amazing i can't imagine that any other group of people could pull that off but when you have Alperin's and Stephen Sondheim and i guess you can so then when it comes to sending the clowns a very famous story <clears throat> a few days before they um are going to uh, go to Boston um, for their out-of-town tryout. Um, Hal Prince, uh, you know, Sondheim was supposed to write a song for Frederick in that spot, um, but after seeing the scene that Hal Prince had staged, he really felt the entire scene was actually about Desiree, and we needed to get into her, into her emotions, into her feelings about this entire thing. Um, and he goes home and and turns around, sending the clowns specifically tailored to Glennis Johns, um, who was the original Desiree Armfelt. If you're not a total musical nerd like we are, which, um, or if you're a, you know, an introductory musical nerd, first off, welcome. We embrace you with open arms. Um, and you would know Glennis Johns most famously for being um, Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins in the movie originally. That's that's where you would know her. But she was not really that much of a singer, much more of an actor, and had and 
had you know it was so it was written specifically and tailored to her voice to her ability to kind of phrase a lyric almost as spoken so it's really that original version is really not sung it's now become sometimes single most um popular number i guess in terms of popular radio and um it's been recorded by a ton of people it's on like you know tons of solo artist albums and things um, but it was really specifically tailored to Clintus Johns for the short phrasing and, and whatnot. And of course, it is a huge hit and everybody loves it. And it is the, you know, the crown jewel of the second act of the show in, in many ways. Um, but what I did not know about its journey to Broadway. So apparently a week before opening, Glennis Johns got very sick and collapsed and was taken to the hospital. Um, things were so bad that um, Hal Prince and the team considered replacing her with Tammy Grimes, brought Tammy Grimes in to see the show. Um, Tammy Grimes had a lot of um, stipulations and concerns about being brought in that late and like, would she be able to make artistic choices, costumes, like all these things had a lot of, I don't want to say demands, but just, I, I think, fair reservations about what she was actually going to be able to accomplish a week before opening. Um, so it kind of that deal ended up kind of falling apart and Prince almost flew to London to seek a replacement for Glennis Johns because they were so concerned about the money and all the stuff. Um, but he visited Johns in the hospital uh, the morning, I think the morning he was supposed to leave for London and she had gotten much better. And so they opened right on schedule. Uh, so that is just some of the trials and tribulations of uh, Little Night Music getting to Broadway. And once it opened on Broadway, it opened at the Schubert Theater on February 25th, 1973. Uh, it played there until September 15th, 1973, and then moved to the Majestic Theater on September 17th, which it used to happen all the time then. Never, almost never happens now. Um, it's always kind of jarring when I see that. I'm like, that just feels weird to switch theaters. Also to move like halfway down the block, like why? You literally are just like rolling things literally down the block yeah. to go to the Majestic, right? Yeah. Am I wrong? Uh, I think, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's on 44th, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Cause it's, it's there. Yeah. insane. Insane. Well, just, you know, everybody with a bunch of dollies, I guess, just pushing stuff down the street, pushing a bunch of birches down the street. Um, and once it was there, it uh, cl ran 601 performances and 12 previews, closing in 1974. Um, and it was a success. It was a success. And once it opened, it was it was a success. It got good reviews for the most part, and it was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, of which it won six, including Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, and Best Original Score. So it it did well. And then from there, it you know it had the usual trajectory. It opened in a bunch of different places. Um, interestingly enough, it's often done in opera companies because it, the singing is so classical in many ways and there's so much singing. So uh, you see it often there. Um, and the most notable revival, I would say, is uh, a revival that began at Menier's, the Menier Chocolate Factory in London in 2008, directed by Trevor Nunn and then transferred to Broadway in 2009, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones as Desiree and Angela Lansbury the great Angela Lansbury, RIP, um, as uh, Madame Armfeld. And then after they finished their runs, it reopened again after a brief pause with Bernadette Peters and Elaine Stritch. Um, so that, so it's, it's always kind of been around and obviously it's a, it's a popular one in the regional theaters. It also um, has a film adaptation, which I'm sure many people would 
prefer that we just forgot existed, including probably Hal Prince. Um, 1977, this film came out. Hal Prince had already made one film. This was his second one. It starred Elizabeth Taylor and some of the cast who had been on Broadway, Len Cariou, uh, reprised his role as Frederick Egerman. And I think it's fair to say uh, nobody liked it, uh, including Hal Prince. He never made another film. Um, Sondheim refers to the movie as a sad and listless affair and a waste of everyone's time, which, you know, ouch. Why? I haven't seen it, but it can't be that bad. Like, what's wrong about it? I don't know. I, I watched some of it, and it's it's pretty bad, I got to say. It, it, it suffers funny. a little bit from that sort of, like, the movie version of Forum, too, where it's, like, really kind of, like, it cuts really quickly, and you're like, why are, why are we jumping around so much? So... Mm. You know, I think it's hard sometimes for creatures of the theater to to work in film. And I know it was for Hal Prince because he was used to having so much control over what it looked like. And in the film world, the director doesn't have all of that control all the time. It's, you know, it's up, there's editing, there's fine, like there's a bunch of other stuff. So I think he sort of realized that this was not the medium for him, perhaps. So, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside The Miller's Son? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let's talk about The Miller's Son from A Little Night Music. This is a song that I think is fairly controversial and fairly confusing to a lot of people for reasons I'll talk about in just a minute. Um, it is a song that was written pre pretty late into the process of the show being created, uh, written in rehearsals by Stephen Sondheim. Um, necessitated a cast change because the original person they had cast as Petra couldn't sing it, so they actually replaced her with someone who could. Um, and it's pretty much the only song in the show that isn't in three-quarter time. They're all in this waltz world, so it's a different sounding song, and it is the only song in the show designed to be sung uh in a belt voice, not in a head voice, which feels correct when you think that this is this is Petra, this is this very sexy, this is this earthy maid, um, as opposed to all these sort of lofty aristocrats who are thinking with their heads all the time, she's just coming from the gut. So that feels already like you have something slightly different and feels something that is gonna be thematic to the song. So as I said, this is a confusing song for people. Um, it is the 11 o'clock number, uh, most people would think that that would be Send in the Clowns, the most famous number from the show. But no, it's it's actually this. This comes after uh, Send in the Clowns. Um, and it's sung by a minor character. So Jesse Green, in his recent review of the A Little Night Music production that they did at Barrington uh, Stages, said uh, it, that the fact that it's by a minor character is perhaps the worst, the work's one misstep. Uh, plus, the song really has nothing to do with the plot. We really don't know all that much about Petra. We don't know who the Miller's son is. We don't really care who she ends up marrying. Um, it is. It could be cut from the show, and you would not have any problem following the story in the slightest. It does not add anything to the actual story of the show. So why is it in here? And specifically, why is it in here in this primo, arguably the most important spot in the show? So I think that the song is actually key to understanding the show. Um, the show is about love and sex, but it's also about life. The show has rep representations of youth, young adulthood, middle age, and old age, characters for each of those. 
And there's the presence of time passing with the smiles of the night that we get. But this is the only song in which you experience that full life cycle within the song. And having it sung by a minor character allows you to scope out from all the characters in the show and be reminded that this is about life with a capital L and not just the life of the characters in this show, basically. It is, it is a thematic underlying of everything that is the message of the show. Um, and it really allows you to have this macro view over the whole thing. Okay, so let's dive in. Context. We've met Petra, the Eggerman's maid. She's 21. She's earthy and fun. She's a confidant to Anne, who is younger than her, and a lover, sort of, of Henrik's. They they are clearly having a physical relationship, but she also kind of treats him like he's a little bit of a child. Um, and we know that that relationship has no, there's nothing romantic there at all. It's just purely about sex and uh, her kind of teaching him a little bit some stuff and teasing him. Um, and we get the sense that she has no illusions about the world and she knows exactly who she is, um, and is pretty happy with that. Uh, she's a great character. We like her. When everybody arrives at the Armfeld estate, she immediately has a flirtation with Frid, who's a servant of the Armfelds. This song takes place immediately after Anne and Henrik have run off together at the end of the second act. And before that, Sin and the Clowns has happened. So we've seen a couple for whom love is too late. Um, in Frederick and Desiree, and then a couple that's just starting in Anne and Hedrick. Um, and this song has no other context other than seeing that Frid and Petra have just made love in the hay. There's no scene either before or after it, no lines at all. It is just this song. So let us start. Okay, so we get this initial vamp. And even in this tiny little opening vamp, we get a mirror of what the song is about to do. You've got this cello playing a single note, not going anywhere, providing a foundation, very kind of like serious, somber sound. Then you've got the harp with this little glissando. So the cello is representing her reality, which is grounded and humble. And the harp is this fanciful imaginings she'll have for what her life might be. I shall marry the miller's son pin my hat on a nice piece of property Friday nights for a bit of fun we'll go dancing meanwhile So we have the first verse here, and the lyrics are all practicality. She's going to marry the Miller's son. We've never met this person. Um, it's a practical decision. She will pin her hat on a nice piece of property. Um, but on Friday nights, they'll go dancing for a bit of fun. And we get that little um, grab at bit, that emphasis on, on bit, a <laughs> tiny bit. But she's like trying to break free there. Um, so this is not a particularly happy uh, thing that she's imagining. You could imagine a girl of 21 singing about the person she's going to marry and it's like full of joy and anticipation. That is not this. You could also imagine it being full of sorrow and, and dread. That is also not this. Um, this feels like potentially realistic, right? But, but also kind of dull. 
It's so regimented. It's so small. And the most fun she's going to have in her life um, is dancing on Friday in this world. And the music is an interesting tone. It's kind of formal. Feels like it's not a new idea. It feels like something that she's um, accepted. It's kind of a statement of fact sound more than anything else. But then we get this meanwhile, which really sets us up for something different, which is... It's a wink and a wiggle and a giggle on the grass and I'll trip the light fandango. A pinch and a diddle in the middle of what passes by. It's a very short road from the pinch and the punch to the punch and the pouch and the pension. It's a very short road to the ten thousand plunge and the belt and the grouch and the sigh. In the So here the song really gets rolling, right? We go from the stateliness of that opening with this very kind of like formal plodding, almost like groundedness. But here it's it's got so much more energy. It's got so much more fun. The lyrics are suddenly full of rhymes and wordplay. It's just, it takes off really. It feels much younger, much lighter than that very grown up first verse. But Petra is making a real point here, too. It's not just that she wants to have fun before she settles down. Um, She wants to get her kicks in in the middle of what passes by. She's very aware that time goes fast and your opportunities are limited. So although that she's young and fully intending to celebrate her youth and freedom, she has a wisdom and a sort of macro view of what life is. It is not a sort of live fast, die young situation. It's actually a very mature statement. You don't have much time. So in some ways, it is answering Send in the Clowns in that way. Send in the Clowns is about a woman who has waited too long. Petra already is not going to make that mistake. Um, And though it's abstracted here, these second and third uh, stanzas are largely about age. We get a lot of these, these sort of great alliteration these great, almost onomatopoeia here, like paunch, pensions, belches, you know, you're getting so much of just words thrown at you that that symbolize this age. Um, And they sound kind of old and gross and tedious in general. There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed and a lot in between in the meanwhile. And a girl ought to celebrate what passes by. Okay, so we get meanwhile, which is a word that recurs a lot in the song. We've already heard it once or twice. I think we're going to hear it nine times over the course of the song. Um, And after the frenzy of all that sexiness before, all those words, um, and then this kind of like, we got to grab it before it passes, now this relaxes into something more of a dance, right? It feels joyous and a little more balanced than the formal first verse and then the frenzied second and third verses. Um, And I'm just going to note that this chorus has six lines just noting that for later okay there's going to be three strophes in this song also um three obviously hugely thematic over the course of this show it's all about triangles and even though the song is not um in three-quarter time it is built on threes or i shall marry 
the business man. Five fat babies and lots of security. Friday nights, if we think we can, we'll go dancing. Okay, so now we have a return to the less exciting reality, but now it's a little elevated. It sounds a little bit more fun than the first one. Um, and she's dreaming of a businessman rather than the Miller's son. So a businessman is higher in status than the Miller's son. And the imaging is getting a little bit more filled in. It's not just about getting some property. She's imagining having five babies, which is something you really can't possibly know in the same way that you can know that if you marry the Miller's son, you, you have a good piece of property. Um, and she's imagining in, you know, if we think we can, uh, that's more of an image of her and this businessman husband of hers. They're so busy. They're so tired. Oh, maybe they could manage a night out, but, but not, maybe not. Um, so it's an interesting mix of realistic because thinking like I'll be too tired to go dancing or I'll be too busy is a mature thought, but also fancy, fanciful in its dreaminess, right? She's, she's going to a place of daydreaming a little bit more than she did, uh, in the first version of this, um, both in terms of like class and in terms of vast, like she's, she's a maid. She could marry a businessman, but it's not as probable as ending up with someone like the Miller's son. Um, so it's a little, it's got that sense of, of elevation, a little more daydreamy, a little more like that childhood game where you're sort of, you know, going through all the different list of people who you could potentially marry in the mansion you're going to live with or the, you know, castle, whatever. It's a push and a fumble and a tumble in the sheets and I'll put the highland fancy. A dip in the butter and a flutter with what meets my eye. It's a very short fetch from the push and the hoop to the squint and the stoop and the mumble. It's not much of a stretch to the cribs and the fruit and the bosoms that droop and go dry in the lean So now we're back to this abstracted uh, sense of um, sexiness in that first uh, section of this, this little stanza about the giggling and the whooping and all, you know, all of that fun stuff. Um, sorry, push and the fumbling on this one and tumble in the sheets. Um, all this just great, great, great words. Um, and these verses are more specifically talking about uh, the result of those five babies, cribs and croup and drooping bosoms that are going dry. Uh, Petro is really seeing what this life would be as opposed to the more general age stuff in the first um, strophe that we had here. Um, and Sondheim is just having so much fun with this words, and Petra is having so much fun with these words. Although some have argued that the wordplay is too sophisticated in this song for a character like Petra to have to be capable of, really, that it's a kind of mismatch of who this character is and the lyrics. Um, to which I say, okay, first of all, that's a little classist to say that someone wouldn't be able to have clever wordplay because they are a maid. Um, but also, I think there's something about this whole song that is slightly uncanny. Petra is both a lusty 21-year-old maid 
and a character who possesses an almost uncanny ability to see the realities of life as a whole. Like she has this sort of overarching vision of what life is and could be. So this level of wordplay adds to that sense that in this moment, she is both exactly the character she is, but she's also channeling something beyond herself. That this song is not just about her particular life and the realities about her particular life. Um, it is about something bigger than that, something larger than that, something beyond just this weekend and these characters. There are mouths to be kissed, people, mouths to be fed, and as many a tryst and as many a bed to be sampled and seen in the meanwhile. And a girl has to celebrate what passes by. So Sondheim does something so brilliant here. Now, this chorus has eight lines instead of six, which the first chorus had. There are two more in the middle here, and there's many a tryst and there's many a bed that's been added. Uh, just as she's talking about the span of life, the choruses are growing. We are literally watching life in the form of these choruses get longer. And the first one just talked about kissing, right? Mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed. But now we're talking about trysts in bed, sex. The choruses have grown up from something that you might talk about when you're a teenager or a child, you know, kisses, to something that you do when you're a young adult, sex. Um, so we're, we're progressing through a life in these choruses, and the choruses are getting larger just as time and the years get longer. Um, and while the first chorus ended with, a girl ought to celebrate what passes by. Now it's a girl has to celebrate what passes by. As the song ages, as it were, the urgency of celebrating what passes by has increased. Or I shall marry the Prince of Wales. Pearls and servants and dressing for festivals. Friday nights with him all in tales We'll have dancing Meanwhile And so now we go back to this version of who she's going to marry this, reali this realizing of these This imagining of, of the potential husbands. And this has gotten very fanciful now. She's dreaming that she's going to marry the Prince of Wales and there's jewels and festivals. I mean, it sounds like a fairy tale. So even though the song is bringing her through adulthood or is to adulthood and, and growing in these choruses and getting older and getting more realistic, um, we have this interesting reversion in these first verses to a child because this is this sounds more like a child daydreaming than any other moment in this entire song. So why does the song do this? I think that this is a sort of last gasp of Petra's childhood, that she is growing up over the course of this song, not only just in imagining a lifespan and imagining herself being old, but also by allowing herself this last moment of 
the fun of dreaming that you're going to be a princess um, until we get to the end of the song, which we're about to do. It's a rip in the bustle and a rustle in the hay and I'll pitch the quick fantastic with flings of confetti and my petticoats are way up high. It's a very short way from the fling that's for fun to the thigh pressing under the table. It's a very short day till you're stuck with just one or it has to be done on the sly. In the And so these first verses feel the most concrete in terms of these, um, this section of this song. They're the most complete phrases, not the, the words of the first one, the pouch and the paunch and the pension. And then the most mature in her thoughts. It's not just someday that she'll be old and that's kind of gross and you're going to belch and be stooped. Um, or that someday you're going to have kids and then the kids will make it hard to have sex and also your boobs will be dried up. Um, here she knows that sex itself will become something less fun. You're going to be stuck with just one person. You know, you're going to have to fit it in. It, it, it feels the most realistic of these particular um, verses, which is appropriate because she's getting more and more developed in her maturity about this stuff, even as she has these interesting first reversions to a childhood dreaming. It's like as much as the song is pushing her towards the reality of what it is to age, the song is also allowing her to kind of pull back into childhood as a kind of last way to move through. So she's she's not just aging through the verses, she's also um, moving out of an entire stage of her life by doing this. There are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed And there's many a tryst and there's many a bed There's a lot I'll have missed but I'll not have been dead When I die And a person should celebrate everything Passing by And I shall marry the miller's son. So we have the final chorus and it grows another two lines to be 10 lines. So it adds on to the previous two choruses uh, with the very key phrase, there's a lot I'll have missed, but I'll not have been dead when I die. Which, of course, when we're talking about a song that encapsulates an entire lifespan, we've now reached death. Um, and what Petra is imagining, she will want to say when she dies, which is just that she is not missed out on living any life, right? That's the nugget of the song in, in a nutshell here. And after this declaration and the big note on die... We have a rollicking assertion. A person should celebrate everything passing by. Not just her, not just a girl, not just a specific life experience, and not just what passes by. We should all celebrate all of it, the good and the bad. Um, and this doesn't pull right back down to the melancholy music of the first verses, which is what that the equivalent line did. It still kind of dances joyously. There's still a great celebration in this idea that we have to celebrate what passes by. We have to um, 
find love and we have to find sex and we have to find joy um, at every stage of life because it's all limited, right? Just as this entire show has taken place um, over the span of time, this the the night has three smiles. We've gotten all of these kind of compressed time arcs. And here we're almost at the end of the show. And it's a reminder here that you have to be present in all of these moments. Um, but there's this amazing thing that happens at the end of the song, which is that it comes back to, and I shall marry the Miller's son. It's kind of a surprise because as I said, the, the line doesn't draw you back to that moment is does in the other two choruses. Um, but we're back to this little beginning, the same sort of melancholy, grounded, foundational, I shall marry the Miller's son, a statement. And to me, this shows that Petra has gone through this whole life cycle in the song, the last gasp of childhood in her daydreaming about her husband, the increasingly realistic view of what old age will hold, the thought of her own death, and come back to the reality, which is that she probably will marry the Miller's son, and her life will probably go as she imagines into old age. Um, it feels like she's finally accepting the reality of a life that is not Pro probably going to contain the crazy excitement of balls and festivals. She is a maid in this very structured society. She probably will marry someone who is her equivalent social class. She probably will have babies and find it difficult to get dancing and, you know, do all of these things that she sings about. Um, so it's kind of a, maturity has happened that she's allowed herself to kind of go away from this reality and now come back to sit in it again. Um, on a side note, this last line actually reminds me a little of the last line of finishing the hat um, from Sunday in the Park with George, of course. Look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. Uh, in both songs, I think that this final line is a little ambiguous. I think it could be played as either triumphant in a way or as rueful acknowledgement of what each character is missing. Um, I think it could be up to the actor and the director how to spin that. Interestingly, apparently, Stephen Sondheim told the actor who played this part to smile at the end of the song, which is interesting because I would have taken it a little bit more into a darker direction probably, a little bit more like, yep, and that is what my life is going to be, instead of like a celebration. But uh, for Sondheim, I think the idea that the reality is going to be potentially a little bit grim is not separate from the idea that you are accepting your grim reality, but also accepting that you will uh, embrace every part of it. That's uh, my best guess to what that means. Um, so, okay, so why this song sung by a minor character at such an important moment? Let's go back to that question. Um, I think in this moment when you're so sucked into the plot of A Little Night Music, this song about people we do not care about, have never met, um, will never meet, the businessman, the Prince of Wales, the, the Miller son, um, just takes us out of the plot and reminds us of that larger thing, which is that it doesn't matter which of these characters we are. It doesn't matter which of these ages we are. It doesn't matter if we're Desiree. It doesn't matter if we're Madame Armfeld, who's had a full life full of love and sex and now has come out of it and in, into this, uh, you know, old age where she's, she's 
appreciating that, but also living a bit in the past. You know, Desiree, who is kind of decided that she wants to go for a conventional romantic life in a way and, and missed her chance, we think, at this moment. Um, Anne and Henrik, you know, like all of these different versions, this shoots us out of it and just reminds us that these, that the life is long, that no matter who we are, this is a lesson that we need to learn. In the middle of this gorgeous show about the mess that love is for all of these characters, we get this beautiful little microcosm, a reminder of how fast life goes, how many compromises are made, and how important it is to grab joy while you can. So this song is about zoning out, about making the show about... So this song is about zooming out, about making the show about life, rather about these lives, specifically of these characters that we've gotten to know. So it resets the perspective of the entire show and enlarges it. Um, so I think it's really key and important because I think it it gives the show a, just a greater perspective, a greater zooming out, uh, a greater purpose, a thematic underlying um, that is really quite brilliant when you think about it. It's, it's such a bold move to have this song here and to have this song at all in the show. But I think it just makes the show much more large and special by doing that, by making that strange choice. So it's great. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues about A Little Night Music, both internal and external. So the big broad topic uh, to discuss here, I think is just the nature of the sexual politics of Little Night Music. I, you know, it's it certainly, it is now a 50 year old musical um, as of, you know, in a few months, it would, from the time of publishing this, it will be a 50 year old musical. Um, and it certainly takes um, its view of sexuality very differently from how we do today. And it's already kind of adapting a European sexuality to an American sexuality in the seventies. And I think it's, it is a very interesting kind of conundrum uh, that it explores. Uh, certainly you've got the odd I mean, it starts off in odd pairings, which is part of the point. But, like, you know, you've got Frederick, who is, you know, in his mid-40s to late 40s, maybe even early 50s, marrying Anne, who's 18 and younger than his son, um, who is a seminary student, right? Because I think he's, like, scripted to be in his early 20s. I think he's not, like, a late No, I think he's, he's 19. In 20s. I think way, she's 18 and he's 19. 19 like basically you know the the same age as his son definitely things that uh there are certainly age gaps in relationships and we're not here to to judge that um but it is kind of an odd like as she like sits on his lap and it's a made a whole deal of the fact that she hasn't slept with him because she's not ready and like while yes in many ways that's weird because they've been married for 11 months like yeah it's also like early 20th century aristocracy in Scandinavia. So like, maybe that's not that weird. I don't know. Annika, what are your thoughts on the sexual politics in Little Night Music? Yeah, I think it's interesting because for the most part, I think the show is remarkably not 
weird. Like, I think this show actually manages to avoid some of the stuff that, like, is a little more present in forums, say, where you, you kind of feel that, like, 60s, like, businessman humor in, like, all the silent prostitutes who are dancing sexily and the, you know, the dumb virgin and the dragon lady. Um, <clears throat> this show, I think, really doesn't have that sense of, like, you don't have a... a a male gaze in the same way in this show um, that that show has. But you do have some realities of both the time period it is it is set in and um, the time period it was written in. And I think, um, yeah, that's, that is probably the most present one. I'd say, you know, it's funny because I love Deeply Now, Later, Soon, which I would absolutely have analyzed if it wouldn't take me seven hours to get through how complex and wonderful that song is. But like, you know, there's some stuff in the, the Frederick lyrics that you can't hear as well, which is are kind of like, he's sort of like, I mean, he's gently musing um, on like kind of forcing her to have sex with him because again, I mean, he is her husband and it's been 11 months and this is, you know, the turn of the century. This is like a time when male and female relationships were different, especially within a marriage. But like, there are like one or two moments there where I'm like, oh, I'm maybe glad the audience can't really hear this in the in the clear. Um, but I think even then, it's sort of like Frederick is so is presented as so different from like Carl Magnus, who is such a like. Um, Dragoon, Dragoon, yeah. and and like <laughs> Carl Magnus is like kind of like Milos Gloriosus in that sort of like he's a he's a peacock. He's described as a peacock. He's like you know a strutting masculine, violent man. Um, Frederick is presented as very different from that, as much more conscientious, much more kind. He's although he's saying these lyrics about how he's going to maybe force her. We don't think he's ever really going to do that. Um, and, you know, even in the scene with Desiree, where he's gone to Desiree to basically say, will you have sex with me, old friend? You know, he can't even sort of say it. And his dealing with her is very friendly, conscientious. Like, the, there's no sense that he's going to storm in. In this way that Carl Magnus does when Carl Magnus comes in and, like, starts taking off his pants. And she's like, stop taking off, you know, put your pants back on. Like, um, there's... There's moments there. And and Desiree, even when she finds out that Anne has not slept with, with Frederick and says, you know, like, I'll kill her, basically. She's unfeeling. Like, there isn't a lot of, um, like, there isn't a lot of exploration or, or um, you know, conscientiousness about the idea that this is a young girl who clearly doesn't feel comfortable with this yet. And if you were writing the show today, I think you would be a little more conscientious about the fact that this is a young girl, really, like an 18-year-old who has married this older man and isn't comfortable with this. And um, at that time, and even in the 70s when it was written, you know, there I think there was more of a sense of, like, she owes him this. She is his wife, and this is, you know, expected for her to be giving him sex in a way that we wouldn't we wouldn't say that today. Um, but even like Carl Magnus and Charlotte, I think is really interesting. I have seen productions where they have played Carl Magnus very much as, um, abusive, much more like cold, much more hard, um, 
And it does not really work, frankly, because I think that while he certainly has that to him, if you don't have, if you're not presenting that as a little bit buffoonish, um, it, the the balance of power between him and and Charlotte and and Charlotte's love for him that I think is is real, even though she acknowledges that he's an, an asshole and an idiot. Um, I think it it is different than the love that someone has for their abuser. I think she has it for this idiot, but not necessarily because she is trapped in this very toxic, um, physically abusive relationship. So, so I, why, why would she then go to the links that she does to then like win him back essentially, you know, yeah. like I, there is frivolity to all of the sexual politics that, make that almost excuse all of it because it's right. you know it's very open all of it's a very open secret yeah you know? and i think at the end you want to be happy for her i mean you wish she had aimed a little higher and found someone who was more her equal but like she gets what she wants which is that her husband has become this idiot for her instead of you know just coming in and telling her about her lovers which is what has been bothering her so you know so i think there's that and then of course you have like madame armfeld who clearly had all of these relationships um in which she was equal or or in control i will say um knew what she was getting into and why she was getting into it and is trying to train her daughter and her granddaughter to be um a sexual and romantic partner in a way that will allow them to um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say like, it's, it's both a sort of transactional relationship clearly because she's like gotten, you know, <laughs> castles, a, a chateau with a staff and all this champagne and, you know, a tiny titian. And like, she was having these affairs so that also she could get all of this stuff and this comfortable life. But you do get the sense that that was all from choices that she made, um, using, power that was available to her as a woman in a time when women have very little power. So, so I think there's a balance of various things. And then Petra, which I talked about a lot in with the, you know, the Miller son and, and sexuality for her being something that is very um, uncomplicated in a world where, you know, that it's funny because actually I think that's what I would say is like romance in this show is complicated. Love is complicated. Sex is not complicated. I think in a way that in it feels very European to me, as opposed to in American shows. I think sex is complicated. Romance and love often is not complicated. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I that's interesting. An interesting point because what, what I was thinking about as you before you got before you said that last little bit, which I think is very, I, I love that. I think it's a really smart i'm like gonna think about that for a week but um what i was gonna say is like well and the the pairs that end up together their relationship to sex is the same like oh i like that i, I that's what i was gonna say because ultimately like the, for like Anne, sex is not simple um or she probably would have slept with her husband by now henrik also has some sexual frustrations and struggles that we see very early on with petra who does not have any um you know, and like then Carl, you know, the relationship that Desiree actually has to sex is actually a little bit more um, intimate than Carl, than where Carl Magnus is at with it. 
Um, and yet, and Henrik is also at the same, or um, Frederick is at the same kind of level in some way that like there is a romantic, a romantic notion behind their sex that like, there's nothing about him that presents as, even though in like, remember and the, <clears throat> when we're there, the, <clears throat> uh, the singers are talking about, um, all the like specific instances of them getting it to getting together or not. And like, Oh, was that you? I'm not so sure. But like, neither of them are kind of put on as like, Oh, like they're just having sex with everybody. So like there is a, a tenderness in, in how they relate to each other in that way. And Carl Magnus and Charlotte do kind of see sex as power play in a way that Madame Arnfeld does on a certain level as like, and Charlotte feels disenfranchised because she's not having that that component of her relationship with her husband is non-existent and so i do think there is something about that that is worth thinking about exploring but i think your point is also very right that generally the show's attitude towards sex is quite uh is um is not uh it's inverted than it is in a lot of other Yes, scenarios. and you make a very, very good point, which is that you're right. You're totally right that for Anne and for Henrik, it is not simple, um, which is an important point to make because – and I love the point that, yes, everybody is sort of matched with the person who has that thing. Yeah, that very, very true, very true. Um, you brought up the – oh, God, is it Liba Sliders? I really cannot – I – you know, so it is spelled – I think it has to be Liebeschleider. I think it has to yeah, be. Yeah, okay. The Liebeschleider. We're going to say Liebeschleider, we'll and if, you're, if we're wrong, you can tweet, you can add yeah. us on Twitter. Monica's very popular there. So, <laughs> and, it loves, <laughs> and loves to get into debates with people about musical theater. I should get better about tweeting about musical theater, but I really should don't. Should you? Because yeah. it's kind of a hellscape sometimes. Twitter, 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 Twitter is something oh, special, man. that's for sure. Um, so here's my question about them. Uh do they, what do they add to the show? Because there are times where I think they are vital and there are times where I think they are annoying. And I wonder where you come down on this and what they are doing there. Well, I thought it was really interesting in reading Hal Prince's like um, chapter on the show in, in his book. I thought it was interesting that he felt that they represented positive spirits around um, around this, the the kind of negativity that swirls in and around all these unhappy households. Um, so I thought that was, I think, I think they are ultimately aesthetic um, about the general ambiance of everything than they are um, specific humans, which is not how they conceived them. I think it's also partially just how I, I perceive them as um, fairly tangent, tangential to what's actually happening. Um, but they really feel like they're specific people with very specific personalities and points of view and whatnot. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be that in performance, but in terms of uh, from a literary and or directing standpoint, like a, a big picture standpoint, I feel like they are, they are the atmosphere. They are the, the kind of spirits of this world in a certain way that like i keep making this like circular motion podcast famously a visual medium but like they kind of add to to me they're like that they're in some ways like a physical embodiment of the waltz and of the three-quarter time that like they're kind of constantly swirling around like bringing people together 
not i don't know i i, I see them as very like I don't want to say decor. That sounds terrible, but I, I do think they exist in like a not literal, in a not literal way. I don't know if that actually answers what no, you're no, saying. No, no, I think that makes sense. I, I, I did, but I don't think that they are. I don't think there's like a secret brilliance to them that we don't, that isn't on the page. I guess is if if then maybe that might be very like wrong, and I'm I'm a little shooting from the hip there, but. It's interesting, when I was reading the script, I was surprised to see that they all have very specific names. And then those names do kind of pop up occasionally. Like, I think, you know, when Frederick's saying the name of his secretaries, one of them is Mrs. Lundstrom, which is one of those Lieberschleiders. Um, you know, I, it, they, they were much more, like, named characters rather than when I've seen the show. And I thought, I totally agree with you that it feels like you know, they are kind of stand-ins for Frederick and, and Desiree sometimes. And sometimes it's like, you know, I, I don't know. In my favorite moments with them, I feel like what they do is remind you that this is the human condition. It's not just these people. In the same way that sort of Petra reminds you of the human condition, not just these people. Um, the time that I feel like they get in my way, it always bothers me when I get to the end of the show even though I agree with you that the show is largely perfect, when everything is kind of wrapping up and and the action is kind of interrupted by the Libra Slider singing the like snippet of the show that that person sang before. And that's always when I'm like, get out of there. We know who these people are. Like, we don't need a reminder of like who Anne was when she was singing like now later. You know, I'm like, leave us alone. <laughs> I feel like that's a very like seventies. That's a very seventies show aesthetic too. It's like almost like the show's version of a mega mix. Yeah. Like a oh, just in case you forgot, it's like the it's like the one step away from the old fashioned gets labeled Rodgers and Hammerstein, but the old fashioned musical theater technique of like we're gonna reprise the song again. So sheet music right. sales. Like it's like the one step toward like oh well we can thematically remind people of things that like, it feels very like avant-garde yeah. to me, which to me is like helpful for aesthetic, but it's not helpful because you're right. And what's interesting, there's a whole story about um, they wanted to hire those, um, the quintet on principal contracts because um, how Prince was like, no, they're characters, people. I don't want chorus kids not to, and he's like, and he's not this version chorus kids, but like he wants, some real three-dimensional like actors to sink in and, and figure some of this stuff out. And the union fought them on it and wanted them all to be on chorus contracts, which is such an odd, yeah. like, I'm like, you want to prevent them from getting better, actually a better contract with better wages and better, like, that's so odd, but they like went back and forth and back and forth on it, which is just interesting in the, like, the business machinations of, of its development. Yeah. But yeah, so it's an, it, you're right. It's an interesting... They're an interesting tool that I end question mark within yeah. the show. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask about you in a dramaturgical sense is like, okay, so let's talk Frederica. Like she's very specifically 13. It is very specific. And I think like t not just in stage direction, I think there's actual dialogue in which it's said that she's 13. I think I might be wrong on that, but um, on that particular point, but it is very specifically at least somewhere in the script said she's 13 whether in stage direction or in dialogue it is said in dialogue that the last time frederick and desiree were together was 14 years ago you do the math 
are, I mean, I, come yeah. on. Like, are so Frederica, and she's named Frederica, and his name's Frederick. Like, there's got to be, right. there, come on. Like, it's never explicitly said. There's never, like, that moment. They never have that, like, family moment, quote unquote. But, like, we're supposed to believe that that's his kid, I right? I think so. I mean, it's funny. I feel like Desiree's response to him when he, like, clocks it it's so perfect in that her line about like oh come on you think you're the only frederick in the world because you know it's clear that like desiree has had many affairs but like i do think and i think you could play that as a sort of like yeah whatever you know like like if you wanted to you could kind of make it feel like she it is you know one of three fredericks that she had sex with that year and like who knows but it does feel a little bit like she's not that isn't really what her life is, you know? I, I do think that that is the implication. But again, I think, you know, that's kind of a nice... They've they've managed to sort of avoid having a hallmark, like, but you must be with us, you know? You must support... Like, one of the strengths of this show, I think, is how it rejects sort of conventional family roles and and to some degree romantic roles too, you know, the fact that Frederica and Desiree have kind of a great mother-daughter relationship, even though Desiree is not what we would call conventionally a good mother. She is, you know, away most of the time. Her daughter is being raised by her mother, you know, who is also like making fun of her all the time for touring. You know, like it's, it's sort of like there's great warmth there. It, it isn't, um, there, the show is not making the statement that, like, a conventional family unit has to be adhered to in order for them to be happy. Like, the ending of the show is not the three of them, like, hugging together, you know. Um, even in a way, something like South Pacific has that sort of, like, family tableau at the end, even though that's not quite what that show is about either. But, like, that sense of, like, the family is complete, you know, everything has come back together. It's It's more complicated than that and the fact that like frederica probably is frederick's child is almost like secondary right i mean it's also you know it's interesting you bring up the desiree kind of joking nature and we talk about and i feel like she when she's talking about the and like she's monstrous and all that stuff like she does like go into hyperbole quite easily which is part of what connects her to her mom right because her mom does the exact same thing like there is a similar kind of I want to say almost like a lack of vulnerability, mm -hmm. like I, and not to sound like Brene Brown and somehow say that that unites all the character, like somehow, but the, it's not really a show about vulnerability necessarily, but I, I, at least I don't think maybe I should go back and do my why God why, but like there is something to like, yeah, she even like in that final moment, I, I have always kind of, I feel like so many of the things she says are um, just kind of thrown off, tossed off, like, Oh, mm -hmm. it's not, it's not that serious like we don't have it there is a a frivolity with a lot of the things that she says that i i don't think she has a ton of follow-through on you know yeah. like i don't i don't i don't take her seriously at as in that way about um you know about Anne and wanting to kill her and all that like right. i you know i don't think that that's, which i think it's all like tossed off and even the friend like Oh, I'm not going to ever tell you that that's your kid, even though it's definitely your kid. Like you, I can't, I can be in love with you and have sex with you and, and be in love and get married and whatever, but you're, I'm never going to be completely like your, like I have to have retained some power in this 
which is like I can deny you that little like thing kind of and a very like Beatrice Benedict kind of much do about nothing uh, yeah uh, uh, not courtship jest mm-hmm. kind of whatever a little you want sparring to... kind of romantic thing sparring sparring that's what I'm looking for like there is the kind of that yeah which is it. I think why send in the clowns hits so hard because she is almost never vulnerable you know she does maintain i think you're right she she always is able to sort of recover and laugh it off and make a joke and and uh that is the collapsing of that facade and that ability in her and and that that brief glimpse of vulnerability is so devastating because you have never really seen her offer offer game like that um so that's a very good point and that brings us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Little Night Music. Uh, okay, so Annika, what's your favorite song in the brilliant score that is Little Night Music? Uh, well, this is a great, great score, but this is actually weirdly not a hard question for me. I really love Now, Later, Soon. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm cheating only in that's really three songs, but it's definitely one song as a, you know it's one entity um i just yeah. feel it is brilliant on so many levels some of the lyrics in it are so good and so clever it is unreal i mean the frederick section is insane um but also like what an amazing way to give a char- a deep character portrait of each of these three people have them get stuck in this kind of repeating loop that you get the sense of of like frederick can't get you know can't get anywhere with Anne. basically Anne is never gonna be ready for frederick henrik is stuck in this thing you know they're so stuck and then the fact that it ends with frederick saying desiree this one word like propelling them from this kind of spiral into the plot it is so good i love it oh my god now later soon what about you uh it's tough contest, uh, except it's not a tough contest at all for me. I think Weekend of the Country is absolutely brilliant. I have, I, I think it is the best example of what Sondheim did for the American musical theater. Uh, it is a bop. It is all the things. I think it's brilliant. Special shout out to the, like, I think 1990 uh, Live from Lincoln Center, New York, uh, New York City Opera production that I believe... Uh, is was directed by Scott Ellis and choreographed by Susan Stroman, one of their like first kind of times on the other side of the table. Brilliant staging of Weekend in the Country. I also like that revival staging too, with them on the picnic in the on the pic, the uh, Desiree and Frederica on the picnic blanket and everything happening around them. I think that's also. I just love a little. I mean, I I love Weekend in the Country. I I think it's absolutely brilliant. I love it. Yeah, I think certainly. I mean, it is definitely up there for me. It certainly, I think it would be one of the best end of Act One numbers in musical theater. Oh. No question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If not the absolutely. best, I mean, it's. I, I can think of a few. I, yeah, I was gonna say like. I don't know what else I'd say is like an act one finale. Yeah. I it, I mean, Little Priest is brilliant. Right. Like, sure. Um, but in terms of like the pomp and circumstance of like an act, it's like, I mean, define gravity, I guess. But like uh, pomp, circumstance, like big triumphant like thing. I just, it's pretty unmatched. Yeah, it really, really is. So who's your favorite character? And little night music. I love Charlotte. 
Oh my god, of course. There's literally I I'm like Charlotte's the best character. I think Charlotte's like the best character in all movies. Charlotte theater. is great. And we haven't even talked about I know. her. I literally we haven't talked about her. And she's so I fucking love Charlotte. I know. But but the I mean, also the brilliance of the show is that like every one of these characters is so interesting. I mean, I'm even waiting for like I think Anne is a very, very tough character. But and I'm waiting in my life to see a production where somebody plays Anne and I'm like yes, you have cracked open this part for me because someone's going to do it. In the same way that like David Turner playing Philia and Forum was like revelatory. And I'm like, haha, you have done this. You have made this part that I thought was not interesting into something very... So like all the characters are so great. But yeah, Charlotte is just the best. So good. Best. I mean, I literally like uh, maybe like famously like gonna name my daughter Charlotte. Um, and call her Charlie because I think it's a cute name for a girl. Uh, there's just no actual negotiation on that for me. It's kind of it's a, a price of admission like, thing. I'm gonna like t- I'm basically gonna tell that child that she's named after this character. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's not. I just but, like I just think she's such a phenomenal. Like there are again talk about weekend in the country. Her little bit of weekend in the oh my country God. is just my God. Like the amount of like yeah. oh geez and her like her machinations go back on herself yeah. and i the, just think i think the brilliant dryness of uninvited they'll consider it odd nope. rhyming with oh, oh my, my god. god like come on <laughs> yes there's i have one note on on the charlotte arc which is that i don't i never ever buy it when she is weeping you know I just don't think mm-hmm. that character would weep openly. I think she's very control. I think she would be upset, but I think they're just doing that for the joke of like Frederick coming in and everyone's crying. And that's the only moment where I'm like, no, no, no. I feel like I agree. that's yeah, cheap. I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. So Charlotte's your favorite too? Yeah, Charlotte's my favorite too. Yeah, no, I can't. I, I, There's absolutely no world in which I can make an argument for anyone else. Though I agree. I Typically, I'm always I'm out here always with the ingenue. So like I'm I can't wait to work with an aunt. Like, right. I think I actually think there's a lot of depth and interesting things yeah. about Anne that people don't get. And but, yeah, no. Madame Armfeld has some killer lines. <laughs> oh, Madame Armfeld! Oh my god! Oh my god! Which that kind of leads into my favorite miscellaneous thing. I have like ten favorite miscellaneous things about Little Night Music. It is like the like uh, there are so many one-liners that I just think are. I already talked about the ring monologue. I think the ring monologue is like oh, one beautiful. of the most stunning. It's so beautiful. And I yeah. think like perfectly encapsulates that character and says so much about yep. the show. Also, again, the vulnerability. Side note about that moment. I totally agree with you. When I was reading it again, I was like, oh, did Jason Robert Brown write Stars in the Moon based on this partially? Because it feels like it's kind of similar, you know, sentiment. sentiment. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's interesting. I just know I love I so what I was gonna so related that kind of I somewhat controversial opinion. I really love though Bernadette Peters was definitely uh, a little senior to be playing Desiree. Um and Elaine Stritch is not typically who we might see as a Madame Armfelt. I think when the revival reopened with them, I think it's absolutely brilliant and wonderful. I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. In particular, I think Elaine Stritch's shtick works brilliantly as Madame Armfeld. And I know that that is not something that everyone agrees on. And I'm staring at the eyes of my co-host, who I think is going to disagree with me. But part of the reason I love it is because I think it perfectly works. Um, like the ring monologue to me completely justifies that this woman has this exterior that 
nobody can, no one can penetrate. And in the moment that someone could have penetrated it, she still can't let them penetrate it. And I think, I think it's absolutely heartbreaking and wonderful. So I think that's, that I think that's going to be my favorite miscellaneous thing. I, I, but I could literally say like 10 favorite miscellaneous. Things. Yeah. There's really a lot. And I mean, I will say I love Elaine Stritch to bits. I think her singing, um, Ladies Who Lunch is a master class uh, in everything. But I did have a, tr- a little bit of trouble with her as Madame Armfeld, just because I feel like, to me, Madame Armfeld has a natural sort of elegance to her. And although Elaine Stritch was so good at the deadpan and the dryness, um, it was just tough for me to buy her as this person. Um, I also did think her death was sort of inadvertently hilarious because she just kind of sort of slumped over like she had been shot in the head and it was all very like i'm out and i was like all right <laughs> stretch out stretch, stretch out. out i feel like there was something else i was going to say as a favorite miscellaneous i kind of already touched on weekend in the country i think the ring monologue is fine i took out that production I just love a little. I know music. it's so good. Oh, oh! This is my other favorite miscellaneous thing. Oh my god! No, wait. Okay, my other f- favorite miscellaneous thing, and I probably could have put this into favorite song too. I absolutely love the version of "Glamorous Life" that they wrote for Frederica that they cut. It's so. Good. I love it, and the Audrey McDonald recording on Audrey McDonald's album is probably the most played song in on my Spotify. I love it and i think did they end up using it for the movie is it in the movie or i can't i don't i, I don't anyway i just think it's such a, didn't they write it for the movie i think they wrote it for the movie and then i think they wrote it for the movie anyway there's something about the movie about it but i absolutely love it it is such a brilliant like brilliantly complex song that i'm not sure that any like teenager could really fully ever grasp it but i Audrey mcdonald singing it no notes yeah beautiful so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing (laughs) i do the lines from the show even though there's so many lines in the show that are brilliant the lines from the show that i think of most often probably are perpetual anticipation is good for the heart it's good for the soul but it's bad for the heart let me just butcher that line as i'm saying it um and i think that that little interlude is so beautiful that kind of haunting um repeated moment um that and i also just really like the hands on the clock turn but don't sing a nocturne just yet i just think about that a lot um so those two beautiful things and also on a on a sillier note one of my favorite jokes in the in the whole wide world is when frederick is hiding behind a bush from carl magnus and and then the servant comes out and just goes to the bush and says, dinner, you know, Mr. Eggman dinner is served. And the other, like, ridiculousness of him having to sort of step out from behind this bush. And I, it's such a it's such a funny, elegant, silly gag, and I love it. I, I agree with you that there are so many, um, there are so many, like, one-liners from the show that I think about all, that I, I like, take up way too much space in my brain. Yeah. And that will bring us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. 
where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So we've talked a lot about how this uh, we think the show is close to perfect, and I, but I do feel like the the thing to discuss here is that it's an often overlooked show within the Sondheim canon, I think, especially relative to how excellent it is. It's not necessarily controversial as some of um, the other shows that I think often get overlooked are controversial and or like have some some kind of fault about them or, or whatnot or just aren't considered as, you know, excellent as Sweeney or Company or Follies or Sunday, like, you know, those like shows that end up in that upper echelon, even though as we were also saying, like, what is the upper echelon? They're all brilliant. Like, I, they're all brilliant. Um, but I guess like, to me, this show does live in a very interesting place, as you were talking about as like, the operatic forms of musical theater and like the most um, sophisticated musically in terms of what is attempting to do convey um, in a, and it's just, it is, there's a level of sophistication about little night music that I think makes it um, seem kind of niche or seem less um, palatable maybe than other, other of his shows, even though, it by plot standards is very um in terms of the story it's telling i think is very accessible to like people even non-theater people but i you know i'm not sure i'm struggling to think about what its corner is beyond even just the fact that like okay send in the clowns comes from it and that is steven sondheim's single most popular number and therefore it will always be a part of the canon in some way uh, beyond that like annika what would you say is its corner of the sky yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I would say it is one of the greatest musical pieces about love and um, romance, I mean, that, that exists, basically, um, which is saying a lot in a field that has a lot of shows about love and romance. But I think the depth of this one is really striking, not to mention the perfection of the sort of, like, the whole structure, the whole thing being in waltz time, the triangles, the, like, you know... There's, it's so good, but you're right. There is a curious lack of discourse about this show. Normally when we're working on some on a show for the podcast, I feel like I Googled to find articles about it, about debates. Is it this? Is it that? You know, it's time to retire the show, whatever. Like what? There's usually stuff that people are saying about um, the show. And this show, weirdly... It does. I could not find a lot of discourse about a little night music, just in the in the public eye. I mean, it was. It's I guess because weird, it's just not as controversial, maybe, or it doesn't like it doesn't poke at certain like you know. I, I was about to, I'm about to invoke like Pacific overtures in terms of like great mm -hmm. shows that like are just somehow glossed over, but like Pacific overtures is also like is dealing with like definitely tough stuff it has things to say and like so there are people that want to debate and talk about it but like the line music like people just aren't it's you know and again i we've invoked she loves me before but like it just doesn't for whatever reason like why aren't people talking about how great the show is i just don't get it I, maybe because it's so good i mean i don't know it's like easier to talk about things when it's like oh pacific Overtures is is pacific overtures is spiky and challenging and has these issues like how do you you know like assassins we're like what is assassins how does assassins work with the thing and is it but like this one it's just like 
it's like it's, it's kind of perfect it's like it's so what are you gonna say about it's like almost faulted for being an a minus i'm not saying it's an a minus but it's almost like yeah like it's not an a it's not sweeney todd that is so like just bombastic and big bold and like it's a little more subtle yeah and so it's like faulted for its subtlety almost in that like company being the first is like a game changer and so it gets talked about i think you know then people who saw follies follies has a great amount of discourse about it from the people that saw follies because it inspired such um just uh it is. It was. It was such an event and such a monumental piece. Whether you liked it or hated it, there's just there. It it invokes great feelings on either side. I think of that debate, and like Little Night Music is like this very like it just sophisticated adult musical that is really wonderful and complex. And I yeah, I, we're saying the same things over and over again. I just. I kind of, I just want to speak justice for Little Night Music. Like, why aren't we, why don't more people know the show? Why isn't it more produced? I don't think it's so difficult to sing. It can't be yeah. produced. Like, I, 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 I push back on all that. Like, I reject that. I think this is a brilliant show and more people need to celebrate yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. It's not small, which is probably why it's not done all the time. But, like, it should be considered well, one of the great. Is. It's ultimately, like, 16 people. It's, it's, you could do it very simply. I reject okay, that. Okay. I get what you're saying, but like, I mean, the 25 piece orchestra is not nothing. Cool. But like, come, we've done reductions. That's true. Yeah, yeah, but it should definitely be considered one of the great greats, and I feel like it's considered one of the goods, and that's not good enough. Not good enough, we say. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into a little night music. But before we go, Annika needs to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So, Annika, what is our clue about the next show we'll be getting to know? Well, the show we are going to do originally featured a song called It Ain't Over Till the Fat Lady Sings. Which feels like the right clue. That feels like, that feels like the right breadcrumb to lay about our next musicale. Yes, it does. So we'll see you again in December. Um, in the meantime, make sure to follow us on Instagram. Uh, we're working on really like getting TikTok and Twitter and all the things, but definitely follow us on Instagram at Know the Show Pod. Um, and Anka, why don't you tell us about a really cool project you're working on? Why, yes. Okay, so Signature Theater, my new beloved artistic home, um, is very committed to the work of Stephen Sondheim and has produced, I think it is over 31 productions of Sondheim's shows uh, in their history. I think it's more than any other regional theater in America. Um, we are very committed. We are doing three more this season, Into the Woods, Pacific Overtures, and Sweeney Todd. And we are doing a special project to celebrate his life and his work um, called So Many Possibilities, a celebration of Sondheim, including a piece called Sharing Sondheim. And part of that is that we are going to sing or say aloud the lyrics to every one of his theatrical songs over the course of our season in various ways. Um, so if you go to Signature's website, which is signaturetheater.org, you will get to see some of the ways that we are 
doing this, um, there are going to be Marie's Crisis-like sing-alongs in our lobby, which is going to be awesome. And I am prepping all the lyrics for The Boy From, because I'm going to sing that someday with a cocktail or several. Um, we are doing, I'm doing some song analysis, which will live on our website. We are having some, I mean, it's going to be all sorts of stuff. So um, go on, see what we're doing. If you're a Sondheim fan, we're doing some great stuff to um, celebrate this genius that walked among us and how lucky were we to have him. So check it out and uh, you'll enjoy it, I think. I was going to say, you need to send me the dates for the parties in the lobby because I'm going to need to get a train ticket down to D.C. <laughs> or just hop in the car because I'm there. I mean, they're telling me we need to do the popular songs. I'm like, no, friends, we need to do the not popular songs. We are. I am ready with my... The boy from I am ready with my come play with me. I am ready with my sooner or later. I mean, come on, we're ready. We're ready. We got this. Let well, it... I'll never do anything twice. I mean, we're ready. We're ready. We're ready. We're ready. I remember Sky. Yes. See? Is that counting as theatrical? Wasn't actually on the yes. page. It, evening Primrose is in there. Okay, great. That's what we like to hear. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This episode of Know the Show was produced by Michael Fling and Annika Chapin and edited by our fabulous sound editor, Rachel Landy. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on social media at Know the Show Pod. If you want to keep up with Annika and Michael, you can follow us at handles that are just our names. Because yes, we're just that creative. See you next time. <laughs>